You're listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by HistoryHub.ie and UCD School of History. We're speaking today with Professor Pedro Cardim. Professor Cardim is Associate Professor at the Faculty of Social and Human Sciences and Researcher and Board Member at the Portuguese Centre for Global History, or SHAM, at the Universidade Nova de Lisboa, or New University of Lisbon. His work focuses on the political and administrative history of Portugal between the 16th and 18th centuries, with particular emphasis on the political status of Portuguese territories, territorial expansion in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe and overseas, political administrative communication under the authority of the Portuguese crown, and comparisons between Portuguese and Spanish colonisation in America. He is author and editor of a number of works, including Portugal Unido e Separado, published in 2014, Dom Afonso VI, co-authored with Angela Barreto Xavier, published in 2006, and Polycentric Monarchies, co-edited with Tamar Herzog, José Javier Ruiz Ibáñez, and Gaetano Sabatini, published in 2012. From 2012 to 2016, he was coordinator of the research project Bahia 1619, Salvador de Bahia, American, European and African foraging of a colonial capital city, funded by Marie Curie Actions, European Commission, under the International Research Staff Exchange Scheme. Professor Cardim, Pedro, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for doing this. So today, Pedro, we're discussing the interaction between Portugal and the Spanish monarchy during the early modern period. And we're concentrating on two coexisting processes. Um, on the one hand, the differentiation between the various political formations within the Iberian Peninsula, and on the other, the persistence and even strengthening of an ancient sense of belonging to Hispania. Um, so throughout the early modern period, Portugal and Spain underwent many profound changes, both at the political, religious, economic and social level. They dramatically expanded their political horizons and became the heads of two global empires. And additionally, both Spain and Portugal developed their own political and administrative apparatuses, uh, as well as their own identity markers, such as religion, language, literature, and so on. But in parallel, the exchange between all parts of the Iberian Peninsula remained very intense. And the same can be said about the interaction between uh, Spaniards and Portuguese. And after the incorporation of Portugal into the Spanish monarchy, this interaction became even more intense, generating contradictory reactions, uh, stronger sentiments of belonging to the Hispanic world, and increasing fear of loss of Portuguese identity, uh, which would persist until the end of Iberian Union in 1640. But before we talk about this, um, what do we mean, or what do scholars mean when they talk about Hispania to refer to the Iberian Peninsula? Well, um, Hispania is um, the, the, the old name given by the Romans uh, at the time of the Roman Empire to the ensemble of territories that are part of the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, this was the period that, um, that um, when, when the Iberian Peninsula was under the same ruler, the Roman uh, uh, authorities. And um, this was a period that left a, a very strong um, 
memory in in the way the def, the the several Christian kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula developed throughout the Middle Ages and also the early modern period. That is to say, um, in spite of the fact that the Iberian Peninsula no longer was united uh, under the same ruler throughout the Middle Ages and also the early modern period, these several uh, uh, Iberian uh, kings often uh, express a kind of a nostalgia about uh, Hispania and the time when Iberia was uh, under one sole ruler. So Hispania referred first to the, the time uh, of the Roman Empire when Iberia was was a united polity, but it also referred to something else, like uh, the sense of being part of a of a, of a place, of an ensemble with very similar features in cultural, legal, linguistic, uh, uh, religious terms. So Hispania also expressed this sense of uh, being part of a, a common ensemble. Uh, but as you correctly said, um, it's um, very frequently coexisted with a, a, a ever stronger sense of specificity. Each one of the polities inside Iberia uh, developed its uh, specific character in terms of language, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, legal apparatus, and and um, but apparently that was not incompatible with uh, that persistent sense of of, of belonging to Hispania. So it can be said that um, Hispania was um, was uh, uh, a notion of belonging to an ensemble, but uh, not in an exclusive way. So it allowed the persistence of uh, and even the development of uh, specificities inside each one of the Christian kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula. And um, this notion of Hispania then, and we know the name Hispania was given by the Romans, and it's an idea that was perpetrated by various rulers and so on. But um, was it an identity that was just solely imposed from above or from the outside? Or is there a sense that people living in the Iberian Peninsula began to see themselves organically bound by a common heritage in spite of their divergent languages and cultures? Yeah, it's uh, difficult to say because we don't have access to what ordinary people or people from the so-called lower groups thought about this. So what we have today is basically sources that uh, give us information about the elites and the literate, literate groups of these several Iberian polities thought about this topic. And what we can say for sure is that they often express this sense of being part of Hispania. Uh, of course, this statement could mean very different things depending on uh, your standpoint. If you if you get people from Portugal talking about this, this has a specific meaning. But if you compare it to what is going on in Catalonia or in Castile or in Valencia or in Navarre, that could uh, mean a completely different thing. But uh, uh, the, 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 the point that uh, they all have in common is that they often express this belonging to Hispania. Uh, and uh, uh, but but as I said, it's basically something that uh, we know from sources produced by by elites. So people uh, associated to the universities or uh, courtly life or uh, magistrates, not the ordinary people. 
Um, we can, uh, in any case, um, imagine that it wouldn't be difficult for uh, what I just termed as ordinary people to think about the common ensemble, uh, uh, taking into account that people circulated a lot. If you if you look at the history of the medieval and early modern Iberia, what you see inside the Iberian Peninsula is a lot of uh, people circulating, people of, of, of all origins and 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 backgrounds circulating and uh, apparently adapting very very easily to the different places where they decide to settle down you have portuguese in different parts of the peninsula you have aragonese circulating you have catalans also circulating castilians of course also circulating and the fact that most of the languages they spoke were kind of a similar also helped to to to, to, to give, uh, to strengthen this notion of, uh, of uh, a common belonging. But again, let me stress that this process coexisted sometimes in a rather tense way with a growing sense of belonging to a specific political unit inside the Iberian Peninsula. So I'm not saying, well, everybody was, was uh, perfectly happy with that situation of being part of uh, Hispania, of a common uh, polity, no, uh, uh, these expressions of, of belonging to Hispania coexisted frequently in a tense way with expressions of uh, xenophobia and also hostility regarding your neighbors, uh, for instance, between Portuguese and Castilians or between Catalans and Castilians. So um it's it's a complex picture of what you have uh in the Iberian peninsula perhaps not so different from uh the situation in in between uh Scotland and England or i don't know Ireland it's perhaps another uh, issue but uh, uh from what i've read there are similarities uh between the relationship between Scotland and England and uh what was going on in the Iberian peninsula between these different uh polities and speaking of specific polities, um, at what point did Portugal actually emerge as a separate and distinct kingdom? Mm -hmm. Portugal was was um, was established as a separate king during the, the 12th century, and it resulted from a secession movement from the whole kingdom of Leon and Castile, Leon above all. So uh, Portugal, it can be said, its 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 uh, its origins are. Leonese uh, Castilian. So uh, Portugal used to be a territory ruled by the King of Leon. Uh, and then at a certain point, the uh, a section of the Portuguese nobility decided to, 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 to separate, to split from the Kingdom of, of Leon and, and establish an independent kingdom. Of course, it was a complicated process. There was war uh, and also uh, war not just with 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 uh, the king of Leon, but also with the Muslims uh, who were controlling most of the of the Iberian territory during that period. So when when Portugal was established as an independent kingdom, uh, the new this newly independent uh, polity had to fight in two different uh, front lines uh, against the king of Leon, who was not willing to grant independence to the Portuguese and uh, simultaneously against the Muslim rulers who were controlling a substantial part of the Iberian Peninsula. So uh, these two elements uh, uh, being uh, 
a section of the whole kingdom of Leon and also the fighting against the Muslims. They, these are uh, aspects that uh, deeply shaped the way Portuguese history and collective memory developed in the, in the centuries that followed because all these two uh, topics were constantly recollected and uh, they, they, they were very frequently used for political purposes, in particular during the early modern period. Okay. Can you maybe tell us briefly about some of the common values, uh, cultures, norms, and so on, that bound the Spanish and the Portuguese together under this idea of Hispania up to the early years of the 15th century? Yeah, apart from, from the, 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 the common heritage, the, the sense of, of, of having this past, prestigious past link to the Roman Empire and being part of the Hispania province, um, cultural similarity. I mean, it's 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 obvious uh, that uh, uh, there there are many uh, similarities in cultural terms, in linguistic terms between the Portuguese, between the Castilians, between the the Aragonese. So uh, uh, this this cultural similarity, of course, was was one of the aspects more often um, uh, underlined by people talking about. Uh, this common uh, uh, basis of Iberia. Um, a similar past, I think it's also a topic that must be stressed, the fact that all the, the Christian polities of the uh, Iberian Peninsula were born out of the fighting against the, the, the Muslim rulers who control the peninsula, the so-called Reconquista uh, process, uh, with the the, the so to say, reconquest of the Iberian lands to the Muslims. All uh, Iberian polities were born out of this process. Uh, in one way or the other, they, uh, at their origins, the fighting against the Muslims is always there. So this, this aspect really played a very important role in giving a sense of, uh, well, we have a common past. We, 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 we were born out of the, this very important fighting uh, very important of course from the point of view of the of the Christians of that period um, they regarded the Muslims as their major enemy and so the feeling of fighting together the 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 the, the enemy their their what they considered their enemy number one was was also a powerful element that united uh, different peoples from from Iberia and it's a fact because if you take a close look at the at the armies that fought the Muslims, they were they were comprised of people coming from different parts of the peninsula, uh, irrespective of the fact that they were under the orders of the King of Portugal or the King of Castile or the King of Aragon. So it's uh, really a situation of a very intense collaboration uh, in the fighting against the, the Muslims. In parallel to this, uh, as I said before, the circulation of people. Uh, from different parts of peninsula, the peninsula also played a role, of course, uh, uh, and it's and this is significant because it's very spontaneous. I mean, people circulated uh, uh, a lot, and uh, it's not it was not exactly something that had to do with orders like coming from the court or from royal authorities. People circulated for doing trade, for studying in a university. Uh, like Salamanca or Alcalá de Henares or Coimbra, um, 
magistrates and juries communicated a lot and shared their knowledge. Uh, Castilian law also played an important role here because Castilian law developed uh, more precociously than the legal apparatus of the other kingdoms. And so Castilian law was often employed in Portugal or in Aragon or in Catalonia or Valencia. So, um, and uh, uh, also political institutions. I mean, these are, we are dealing with uh, a set of polities that were very closely uh, tied by different cultural ties. Um, and, and their elites were constantly uh, looking at each other. So we're talking of a, a section of the Western Europe where uh, each polity is looking very closely to what, what is going on in, 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 in domestic politics of, of their neighbors. So it's not a surprise to see that a lot of uh, the same institutions are they, they are developed more or less by the same time in different parts of Iberia, of course, with adaptations so to local conditions, no doubt about it. But you, you, what you also see is uh, a, a striking similarity in terms of political apparatus and uh, legal framework. And uh, so all these aspects really contributed to um, to make this sense of belonging to a common ensemble uh, uh, a very strong one, but not necessarily uh, uh, incompatible, and that, let me stress this point, with a growing sense of specificity. So it's a kind of a, a strange situation where, in which um, specificity and integration kind of uh, uh, coexisted. Royal intermarriage seems to have been a particularly important aspect of relations between the Portuguese, Castilian and Aragonese kingdoms. Uh, for example, uh, Afonso V of Portugal married the daughter of the Castilian king, Enrique IV, uh, who was Juana la Beltraneja, and promptly declared both of them as king and queen of Castile, Leon and Portugal, which led to the War of the Castilian Succession in 1475. Then at the end of the 15th century, Manuel of Portugal hoped to eventually unite the Portuguese and Spanish crowns under Portuguese rule, and married Isabella of Aragon and then later Maria of Aragon, both of whom were daughters of Isabel and Ferdinand, the, the Catholic monarchs, the Spanish monarchs. Now, this obviously didn't work out as Manuel had planned. Um, and the examples I gave are just two examples out of many. Um, can you maybe talk briefly about the importance of intermarriage between the kingdoms in the early modern period? Yeah, intermarriage was, uh, as you've just said, a very frequent uh, practice among not just kingdoms and royal houses, but also the nobility as a whole. I mean, if you if you look at the beginnings of the Kingdom of Portugal as an independent kingdom, what you see is that the, 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 the higher nobility is con constantly establishing marriage alliances with the nobilities of the of the neighboring uh, kingdoms and territories like Galicia, Castile, uh, Aragon, Valencia. So, um, and this was, this was a, a very spontaneous uh, process. From time to time, royal authorities tried to interfere and direct these, uh, these um, intermarriages to a certain territory or prevent a certain section of the nobility to establish these alliances uh, uh, with, with a certain territory. But in general terms, it can be said that this was a, a, 
a very uh, common and frequent practice, uh, in particular uh, among the the, the the nobilities of the different uh, Iberian polities. And uh, uh, the, the end result of this process was um, the formation of noble groups with a very complex um, um, national identity. And I, I put national between uh, brackets because, uh, as you know, the 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 concept of uh, nation and national and national identity for the period that we are dealing with here is is, is a kind of a complicated uh, issue. So. Uh, my, my point is that um, the end result of this um, persistent practice of uh, intermarriages between abilities coming from different polities ended up generating an ability that was complex in terms of, uh, of its uh, political allegiance. Because uh, you can say, well, this Portuguese noble, the fact that he is from Portugal means that his main political allegiance is to his king, the king of Portugal. Not necessarily so, because uh, the branches of this of, of some of these noble houses were so closely connected with the nobility of the neighboring polities that uh, sometimes their uh, political options ended up very very different and 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 completely opposite to uh, the king who ruled uh, in the territory where uh, most of uh, the estates of these noble laws were located. So it's a, it's a, complica a complicated um, situation. Once again, a complicated, a complex identity, uh, an ability with what I termed, uh, tentatively termed, uh, multiple national allegiances. Um, and this uh, persisted until, I would say, the mid-17th century. And we, so we are talking of a of a process, a long-term process from the early Middle Ages, from the the the, the moments uh, when uh, Portugal was established as an independent kingdom until the late uh, 17th century. And as I said, uh, it was very spontaneous. So it was not really something uh, directed from the top, from royal authorities saying, "Let's establish uh, alliances with with." Uh, with uh, uh, noble houses from neighboring countries. No, it was very spontaneous. From time to time, royal authorities tried to interfere in this process, in these practices, but in general terms, it can be said that it was it was uh, something that was part of the noble hetos and uh, and the way the main, uh, the major noble houses of Portugal, Castile and Aragon regarded their neighbors and, uh, and uh, the potential Houses with which they could establish some kind of uh, alliances, alliance through marriage. Is there any sense, aside from maybe Manuel, uh, that rulers, be it on the Castilian or Aragonese side or on the Portuguese side, is there any sense that uh, any of them saw royal intermarriage as, as an attempt to maintain or reclaim this ancient sense of Hispania? Um. Yeah, to a certain extent, I think uh, you are right. Uh, but we, we should also add to what you just said, the fact that all um, Christian rulers uh, in, in Iberia, when they were establishing these intermarriages, uh, intermarriage ties, they were not just um, 
putting in practice something that was uh, part of his uh, noble ethos, but also uh, they were playing like politics. Uh, they were establishing these this, uh, family ties in order to be able to, uh, in the near future, uh, play a role in case of a succession crisis in one of the neighboring polities. So, for instance, Portuguese kings often uh, paid a, a very close attention to what was going on in their neighboring kingdoms so that they could take advantage of some succession crisis and establish and, and incorporate uh, one of the neighboring territories uh, uh, like Castile or Aragon. And the same applies to Aragon and Castile. So uh, intermarriage allowed, um, allowed some kings to uh, play a very uh, proactive role in terms of, of trying to take possession of uh, a neighboring territory uh, based on the claims of that that they are married to a member of the of the royal family of that territory, and Portugal in this respect I think played a, a really interesting role. And uh, um, traditional historians uh, often say that Portugal at a certain point no, was no longer interested in playing an active role in Iberian politics, but uh, the the more recent research has demonstrated that. Portuguese kings, uh, contrary to this traditional idea, they were very interested uh, in, in, in certain moments of the late medieval period and early modern period. They were extremely interested in the possibility of uh, joining forces with Castilians and, for instance, in, uh, uh, establish a, an Iberian Union based in Portugal, not in Castile. Manuel, the, the king that you've mentioned, is a very clear illustration of what I've just said. Manuel was uh, certainly uh, interested in establishing a, an Iberian Union, but one that was more based on Portugal as a central piece of that union and not based on the centrality of Castile. But uh, his plans did not succeed, and, and, and so uh, Portugal and Castile and Aragon remained uh, separated. And um, how did the, the dawn of the age of exploration affect relations between Iberian kingdoms in the 15th century, when Portugal clearly took the lead? It did affect uh, in many ways. Um, from the point of view of Portugal, uh, the expansion was a way to compensate the, the fact that Portugal was no longer uh, in a position to continue fighting and conquering lands to the Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula. So at a time when conquering new territories and incorporating new territories was seen as one of the main objectives of governance, uh, the Portuguese kings, in fact, lacked that possibility uh, inside the Iberian Peninsula. So incursions in uh, North Africa and also in the in the northern Atlantic and then southwards in the Atlantic across uh, along the, the, the West African coast must be seen as uh, in part as a way of uh, Portugal asserting its position in the Iberian politics and like saying uh, we can be a, a, a political power uh, and we can lead an expansion process just like the Castilians or the Aragonese are doing in uh, other parts of the Iberian Peninsula. So my perception is that uh, 
for Portugal um, leading that um, expansion in the Atlantic and also uh, in uh, uh, Northern Africa was a way of, uh, of, 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 of asserting its position inside the Iberian politics. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, the circumstance that Portugal became the head, the head of, a, of a, a huge empire certainly played a role in terms of balance of power between Portugal and Castile, uh, because uh, it gave Portugal a status that uh, it, uh, Portugal would certainly lack in case it didn't have a, 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 an overseas uh, empire. So uh, expansion was was very important, I would say, mostly for Portugal in these early stages of the age of the exploration. Um, as you said, and uh, Castile uh, just got involved in this process later, later on in, in the last quarter of the of the 15th century. So at the time when the Portuguese had already established the first settlements in Madeira and the, and the Azores, and also at the time when the Portuguese had already several fortresses in, in nowadays Morocco. So um, it is clear that that uh, at that stage, Portugal was already a lot more uh, involved in this expansion. And, and the fact that Castile um, starts playing an important role also, in particular from the moment when Columbus does his uh, very famous expedition, this uh, clearly showed that from that moment on, Castile and Portugal would be competitors in the exploration. And so um, it had a kind of a new dimension to the already existing competition or emulation between Castilians and, and the Portuguese. Uh, parallel to this competition or emulation inside Iberian politics now, the overseas areas would also be the stage for this uh, Portuguese-Spanish competition. And that began clearly in the last quarter of the 15th century. I alluded briefly at the beginning of this uh, to the creation of distinct political and administrative apparatuses in the various kingdoms. And the Portuguese discoveries clearly had a profound impact on the Portuguese kingdom. Can you talk about the political and administrative apparatuses that they created in response to these discoveries? Yeah, the Portuguese, uh, when they, they, they began getting involved in more systematic incursions in the Atlantic, they they rapidly felt the need to develop new institutions. Uh, uh, and so from the mid 15th, uh, 15th century onwards, what you see is uh, the creation, uh, the establishment, mostly in Lisbon, but also in some coast, coastal cities like Lagos and other, and other cities uh, in, in different parts of, of, of Portugal you see the establishment of a series of new institutions uh, specifically oriented to regulating the incursions, the trade, and also the navigation that the Portuguese were, were uh, engaged in, uh, in, in in such a frequent way. So institutions like the House of Guinea or the House of the Slaves or the House of India, these are institutions very precociously established, so I'm talking in chronological terms of the second half of the uh, 15th century and late 15th century, which means that um, 
Portugal ended up the first uh, Western European polity to create uh, uh, bodies of government or uh, administration specifically uh, devoted to overseas affairs. It's true that the, the, the institutions that I've mentioned, like the House of Guinea or the House of the Slaves or the House of the Indian they, of, of India, they were mostly concerned with um, navigation and trade and, and fiscal issues. It's, we cannot see them as uh, bodies of government. Uh, they were instead places where authorities tried to establish some kind of regulation uh, regarding navigation, trade, trade of uh, all kinds of uh, commodities and also the terrible trade of uh, enslaved people from sub-Saharan Africa that began precisely in this moment and the, the Portuguese as this widely known pioneer this process. So that's why the Portuguese established in Lisbon the, the so-called House of the Slaves. Uh, so this is a, 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 indeed a very precautious institutional framework, but I would say that it was more oriented to regulate trade and fiscal issues and not so much the government of these uh, overseas lands uh, which, mm, as a matter of fact, they, they, they were not really, at that time, conquered by the Portuguese. Uh, it was only from the early uh, years of the 16th century onwards that the Portuguese started to conquer territories, new lands. And so that was a time when government became uh, really a priority. Uh, until that moment, and uh, with the exception of a few fortresses in, in Northern Africa, and the islands and the colonization of, of, the, or, uh, of the islands of Madeira and the Azores, uh, governing uh, colonial territories was not an issue for, for, for the Portuguese authorities. It only began from the early uh, 16th century onwards, just like, like, like in Spain. Yeah, and of course the Spanish had their own discovery in America in 1492. Um, is it fair to say that discovery of America fundamentally changed relations between the kingdoms? Uh, it did, it did. Um, perhaps not fundamentally, but uh, it did uh, generate a very a, a very strong sense of competition, uh, which already existed before. Uh, do bear in mind that uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish, they fought very intensely in the Canary Islands uh, uh, well before uh, Columbus expedition. So the competition was already there, but now that Columbus and uh, the Royal House of Castile like like uh, promoted so many expeditions uh, following the, the one uh, in 1492, clearly indicated that uh, from that moment on, the competition in the Atlantic between Portuguese and Spanish would be a lot more intense. Um, the Spanish authorities also um, created their own institutions of administration of overseas affairs. Uh, part of them inspired in the Portuguese model. Some historians say that uh, the, the famous Casa de la Contratación in Seville is inspired in its uh, Portuguese counterpart, the House of India in Lisbon. Um, but um, but uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's clear that the fact that the Spaniards, they did conquer huge territories and controlled huge, uh, enormous amounts of native peoples 
sooner than the Portuguese. So the issue of governing colonial territories in, this, in the case of Spain was, uh, was, was, was uh, the, the need to develop institutions to cope with, with the, these challenges was felt earlier in the case of Spain uh, than in, in Portugal. And, and I'm thinking about the Americas and, and the conquest of, of Spanish America. So speaking of the Casa de la Contratación, uh, or the House of Trade. Um, in 1503, this, the, the Casa, the Casa de la Contratación was founded in Seville to oversee all matters relating to Spanish discoveries in America. Um, and you talked about the influence of Portugal on, on the Casa. To what extent was the Casa de la Contratación in Spain founded upon the model of the Casa de India in Portugal? Um, how did their respective functions differ? Um, it's, it's clear that um, the Casa de la Contratación in Seville, which was, uh, as I said, uh, founded in, in 1503, um, was based on uh, its Portuguese counterparts, the Casa de Guinea, the House of Guinea, and also the House of India. And all these institutions that were part of the Portuguese uh, uh, institutional apparatus, they were developed in order to cope with the challenges posed by the overseas expansion. Their tasks were mostly overseeing trade and uh, fiscal issues and also, yeah, basically mercantile issues and not so much uh, political issues. Although uh, in political terms, uh, these institutions became more and more relevant because they became places where uh, an increasing amount of information about uh, African, American, and Asian lands became being collected, accumulated, and organized, uh, creating a kind of one of the first uh, European colonial archives. Uh, so with lots of information relevant for coping with uh, these uh, peoples from the Americas, from Africa, from Sub-Saharan Africa, mostly in Asia, with, with whom the Portuguese were interacting and fighting. So um, the Casa de la Contratación, I think, uh, is, 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 is similar in this respect because it all also began dealing mostly with uh, mercantile affairs. And uh, just like I said, for the Isles of India in Portugal, the Casa de la Contratación also um, started playing the role of a kind of a colonial archive in the sense that uh, it became a place where uh, where more and more information, some of it uh, very sensitive information about the overseas lands began being accumulated. And um, I think um, in the decades uh, that followed throughout the, the, the 16th century, um, the Casa de la Contratación ended up uh, becoming um, more diversified in, term, in terms of its scope than the Isles of India. Um, it began incorporating tasks uh, more related with uh, the political dimension of the Spanish expansion, and its uh, archive uh, became really sensitive for Spanish authorities. As you know, at a certain point, uh, Spanish authorities uh, uh, issued very strict uh, regulation in terms of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of collecting information and showing the information uh, that was inside the Casa de la Contratación. 
in order to prevent uh, uh, other European competitors who have access to that very sensitive information. Um, it is possible that the House of India, the Portuguese House of India, also play that role. And I say possible because we lack the information. Uh, it's uh, one of the biggest problems with which the, the, the Portuguese historians have to cope with, uh, those who are working on the 16th century, is the fact that the archive of the House of India uh, almost disappeared. So it's, uh, it's a key institution uh, but in spite of that, we know very little about it. The, the, the information we have about its uh, history throughout the 16th century is, is not so significant. And in particular, when compared with what we know about the Casa de la Contratación, it's, 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 it's a striking difference. So it's a shame. But, uh, but we know we don't know too much about the House of, of, of India, but it was definitely very, very... Uh, uh, very important. And for listeners who are wondering why uh, we're lacking so much material on Portuguese archives, uh, 1755 was the the famous earthquake uh, in Lisbon, which caused mass destruction of the city and destroyed a huge amount of archival material in the same year. Isn't that correct? Yes. So one of the reasons why uh, we lost the the documentation that would be uh, key to, to to know, to learn more about the history of these and other institutions of the Portuguese central apparatus is precisely the destruction caused by, by the big earthquake. So um, we know very little about the House uh, of India and uh, we don't have too much information about any, uh, uh, several other very important bodies of central government in Portugal because of the destruction uh, of the earthquake in uh, 1755. Yeah, uh, an earthquake so large that it caused a tidal wave that was felt as far away as uh, Seville. Yeah, a big, a big tsunami. And just to put it into perspective, the amount of material that may have been lost, um, even though a significant proportion went missing, because of the fire that was created. In the Torre de Tombo today alone, there is an, I think it's estimated, if the files were laid end to end, it would reach 75 kilometers of material. So we can't even imagine the amount that was lost. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And and uh, one thing I would add to what you've just said is the fact that um, Todo Tombo, the, main, the major uh, state archives in Portugal, still has huge collections that need to be classified and uh, organized and uh, we don't have enough knowledge of uh, 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 huge amounts of documentation. So it's possible that uh, when uh, archivists uh, um, start working on these sections of the archives that are not yet uh, uh, organized or uh, when they produce the first inventories of these sections of the archives, it's possible that we will find um, some documentation produced during the 16th century by these House of India. So there is some expectation about it, of course. And, and, uh, and uh, so part of the reason for this lack of information has to do with this, the, the destruction caused by the big earthquake. But another part of the reason has to do with uh, the, the, the condition of some of the Portuguese archives that need, some of them really 
need more intensive work uh, by uh, archivists and also historians in order to, to, to produce good inventories of this documentation. This work is being being carried out, but uh, there's still a long way to do, to go. Huh? Um, is there any sense, actually, that uh, much of the destruction of documents is all due to systematic destruction by officials who don't want secret information being disseminated? For example, in Spain, there was regular destruction of maps to prevent it falling into foreign hands. Yeah, there were there were some initiatives of uh, destroying uh, uh, sensitive documents, maps, or reports, or also uh, books that provided a lot of information about uh, Portuguese overseas lands, and that provided too much information from the point of view of the authorities. And so, at a certain point, there are some books that were printed, but right after that, authorities say. Well, we shouldn't allow these books to be circulating because they they provide very too much detailed uh, information about uh, Portuguese America, for instance. Yeah, I believe uh, Esmeralda de Cito Orbis was one of these, wasn't it, that book? For instance, yeah, that's that's one example. And But you have other examples uh, in later periods, for instance, in 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 the mid-17th century or as late as the early... 18th century, for instance, uh, the first accounts of the areas of Brazil where the bulk of the gold was discovered, these accounts, some of these accounts were first published, but right after that, authorities got so worried with with the fact that other uh, European rivals could have access to this information that they just decided to to, to forbid these books to, to circulate, and they, they, they just, they just uh, called them back. And... Uh, and so it's 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 clear that uh, Portuguese authorities, just like their Spanish counterparts, they were uh, constantly worried about the amount of information circulating, and they tried to prevent sensitive information from uh, going to the ends of their northern European rivals. Yeah, yeah, it was already a problem in the early 16th century between Portugal and Spain, but then when the French the the French, the English, and then the Dutch came into the picture. It became even much more complicated, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, clearly. And uh, as we learn more and more about the French and the English incursions in the Atlantic during the 16th century, it's clear that uh, the, the the threat was there. And so Portuguese authorities were perfectly aware that they should pay uh, a lot of attention to to this issue of of uh, information. Yeah, yeah. There is actually some evidence of Portuguese and Spanish cooperation towards the end of the 16th century yeah. in preventing dissemination yeah. information, including exactly. execution of spies, <laughs> summary, yeah, summary exactly. execution. Yeah. Exactly. And sharing of information as well, because uh, as, you, as you said before, uh, in the initial stages of the expansion, it's clear that there is some rivalry and competition. But at a certain point in the 16th century already, I would say, during the first half of the 16th century, you, what you see is that uh, both Iberian polities, the, the Spanish and the Portuguese, they, they, they come to the conclusion that their main threat is in Northern Europe, not in the Iberian Peninsula, in terms of overseas domination, you know. So what you, what you end up seeing is a, is a change of, 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 of a paradigm in terms of relationship between Portuguese and Spanish uh, authorities and they start to cooperate, they start to share information, 
Uh, and uh, of course, there is some suspicion all the time, some emulation, some competition, some rivalry. But uh, at a certain point, it's clear that the, the big threat is not in the Iberian Peninsula, but instead uh, uh, northwards in Europe. So turning back to the, the beginning of the 16th century, just uh, briefly, um, in 1500, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabel, uh, Juana, uh, she gave birth to a son by Philip I of the House of Habsburg. And this son, Charles, would in 1517 inherit the Castilian and Aragonese crowns, uh, Castile's New World possessions in America, as well as significant areas of Habsburg Europe. And in addition to this, he was crowned as Holy Roman Emperor in 1519, uh, consolidating an extraordinary amount of power under his rule. How significant was it for the Portuguese that they were now dealing not just with a Spanish king, but with a Habsburg and a Holy Roman Emperor? Um, how detrimental was this to their interests? It was uh, a, a really significant event, a really significant change. Portugal, until recently, was uh, a, a small country, a small kingdom in a kind of a peripheral uh, area of Europe. So um, Portugal was uh, clearly not uh, a, a major stakeholder in, in, in European politics. But from the time Portugal began uh, its expansion process and occupying some lands in the Atlantic and also uh, uh, and, and also conquering some spots of land in, in northern Africa. This, I think, had an effect in, in the Portuguese status vis-à-vis uh, -vis the other uh, European rulers, in the sense that Portugal and the Portuguese kings could, uh, from that moment on, present themselves as rulers as something else larger than just a tiny Portuguese peninsular territory. And, of course, at a time when reputation and... Uh, and honor was so important in terms of politics. The fact that the Portuguese king, kings were able to, to, to produce propaganda that insisted a lot on its overseas dominions was key for a, a kind of a Portuguese self-fashioning, you know. Uh, like Portugal was able to play a major role and, and, and talk in more equal terms with uh, the major Western European kingdoms because of the expansion. When uh, Charles the, the Charles of Habsburg, later on Charles V Emperor, uh, got to the Iberian Peninsula, of course, this was a major change for the whole uh, Iberian Peninsula, not just for Aragon and Castile, but also for Portugal, because um, it gave the Portuguese the opportunity to interact in a, in a, in a lot more direct way with uh, one of the major rulers of Europe of that time. And uh, at the moment when Portugal was already presenting itself in European courts as a major uh, imperial uh, imperial polity. So that's the time when the languages of empire start being incorporated by the Portuguese propaganda. And, and so what you see is that the, the several embassies promoted by the Portuguese kings, Manuel and, and also John III, they convey an image of, uh, of Portugal as a kind of uh, imperial kingdom, as a kingdom that was 
very small in Europe, but uh, uh, was uh, able to uh, conquer and control lands scattered uh, across the globe. And this was key for Portugal, as I said, uh, to, to, to present itself as a, as a, as a uh, not really a superpower, but uh, as, a, as a polity that had the ambition to become a sort of a imperial polity, uh, an empire, a Portuguese empire. Although the title was never officially employed by the, the Portuguese kings, it's clear that imperial ideologies and imperial language had a, a very powerful influence uh, during this period uh, in, in Portugal. And the fact that uh, Portuguese officials started to interact with, with, uh, uh, with representatives of Charles V also played a role because that, uh, that also contributed to make uh, imperial uh, languages and imperial ideologies uh, much closer to the Portuguese context. So um, it made uh, awareness of empire a lot more present in Portugal than before. Um, but at the same time, it also clearly, uh, at least in the initial moments of, of Charles V's uh, reign in, in, in Spain, uh, it also contributed to intensify competition. And uh, as you know, uh, the competition was uh, strongest in East Asia, in the area of the so-called Spice Islands, the, the Molucca archipelago. Uh, but interestingly enough, um, simultaneously to that competition, there was a, 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 a persistent uh, cooperation between the two polities. For instance, it was under Charles V that many Portuguese collaborated with Spanish armies in uh, fighting in Northern Africa against the Muslims. Um, the defense of uh, the naval defense of the Western Mediterranean was a kind of a joint task between the Spanish and the Portuguese Navy. And uh, perhaps even more importantly, intermarriage continued. Uh, Charles V married to Isabella of Portugal. So, and, and, and John III of Portugal uh, married Catherine of Austria. So, um, as I said before, it's this, um, this um, uh, interesting and, 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 and perhaps uh, strange uh, coexistence between rivalry and, uh, and uh, uh, very close ties and, 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 and cooperation, rivalry and cooperation, I'd say it's, it's perhaps the, 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 these are the terms that best describe this, this uh, particular situation. Uh, speaking of rivalry and competition, and you alluded briefly to the Spice Islands, uh, in 1513, Portugal discovered the, the Spice Islands or the Imbalucas in Southeast Asia. Um, can you explain the importance of these islands for Portugal and for Portuguese-Spanish competition uh, from this part of the century? Yeah, these islands were uh, important as a part of the whole strategy adopted by the Portuguese in their expansion in Asia. As is widely known, the Portuguese uh, in Asia, they conquered some spots of land, some enclaves in, in the Indian subcontinent and also in, in several parts of the Western Indian Ocean. But when it comes to, to, to Southeast Asia, uh, the Portuguese, uh, apart from conquering 
the, the, the important city, uh, strategic city uh, of Malacca. They, they also um, managed to um, get involved in the very complex and dynamic pre-existing mercantile trade relations uh, in, in, in Asia, across the Indian Ocean and also Southeast Asia. So when they got to the Spice Islands, the so-called Spice Islands, so roughly nowadays Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, they, 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 they adopted the same strategy they had adopted in other parts of, of, uh, of uh, Asia. They kind of uh, adapted themselves to pre-existing conditions of trade, controlled a few spots, strategic spots uh, uh, in, 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 in the several uh, highlands of, of, of the Moluccas. But what the Portuguese basically did in Southeast Asia was to try to get involved in the pre-existing trading uh, routes, and uh, which were, as I said, very rich, complex and dynamic and very multi-ethnic, because although there was a kind of a Chinese dominance in this, in this uh, trade relations, we're talking of trade connecting peoples from all parts of uh, Asia and Southeast Asia. And so we are dealing with a really multi-ethnic uh, and very complex uh, uh, mercantile milieu. The Portuguese um, succeeded in adapting to this uh, atmosphere, multi-ethnic atmosphere of trade, and they 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 saw the Moluccas as uh, one more market to take advantage. Of course, some spices specific to that area were were very, very lucrative in European markets. Uh, but in addition to that, the Spice Islands were important because of their location. They were located very close to the area of East Asia, Asia where the demarcation between the Portuguese and the Spanish section of the globe was, 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 uh, was located. Um, do remind that in 1493, in the, in the town of Tordesillas in northern Spain, Portuguese and Spanish representatives agreed in establishing a kind of a global division between Spain and Portugal. The, the famous Treaty of Tordesillas, uh, cited in 1493-1494, and then implemented in the years that followed, uh, established a, a, a kind of a modus vivendi between the two Iberian polities. One part of the globe was exclusively for the Portuguese, and the other part of the globe was exclusively for the the, the, the Spaniards. And and the, the line that def, that established the, the demarcation when it comes to East Asia passed very near to the area where the Spice Islands are located. So that was a disputed area, uh, disputed between the Portuguese and the Spaniards, and that's why it became uh, an area of conflict, an area of contact between the two Iberian empires and also an area of conflict because uh, it represented access not just to the the extremely rich trade of spices of that part of Asia, but it also enabled enabled those who were involved in this trade to have access to other uh, other markets and the trade areas like East Asia. And I'm thinking of China and 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 Japan. So 
having a, a, a strong presence in the Moluccas was also key to be able then to expand trade connections to other very rich and dynamic areas of trade, the ones closest to China and to Japan. And of course, both the Portuguese and the Spaniards that that uh, uh, were collecting more and more information about this, and and that this is also another reason why the the spice islands were so strategic for both empires. We spoke about the Treaty of Tordesillas on a previous podcast with uh, Tamar Herzog, and as she pointed out, the treaty itself was problematic because there really was no way of knowing how to measure. Uh, longitude in the 16th century, either in the West or subsequently in the East. And the problem with the Spice Islands was that they could be on either side of demarcation line, depending on how you wanted to draw your charts. So this kind of allowed the Spanish to claim that they owned the Moluccas, that they fell just inside the demarcation, where the Portuguese contended that, no, actually, it falls just within our demarcation. And this kind of uh, set the tone for relations between the kingdoms for a number of years, up to 1529, didn't it? It did, it did. Um, and I, I think it's... And periodically thereafter as well. Yeah, also, because um, from the moment when the Spaniards established their first outposts in the Philippine Islands, uh, so we're talking about the second half of the 16th century, conflicts uh, between Portuguese and Spanish continued to take place in that part of the globe, uh, but also cooperation. So let me insist on this idea that Rivalry and cooperation is is uh, something that coexisted from from uh, in most of the period we are uh, analyzing here. But as you correctly said, the fact that it was so difficult to measure and to say uh, in a very accurate way, this is where the line of Tordesillas is located. Uh, they, they 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 both didn't have the means, the technological means to to do that. So. This is also one of the reasons why uh, this line was frequently a matter of dispute for both uh, Iberian polities. Yeah. So aside from the competition, the imperial competition in the Moluccas and in America between Portugal and Spain, how would you describe the state of relations between the kingdoms in the 16th century overall? I mean, they're obviously very complex, mm-hmm. but we can't, as you say, we can't just reduce them to... Uh, a relationship of competition, can we? No, we can't. Although competition was there, uh, always there, sometimes more intense, some other times less intense. Uh, going back to the spice silence, I think that after the Treaty of Saragossa, uh, 1529, um, things uh, became clear for uh, both, uh, for the authorities of, of both polities because uh, it was. Uh, clear by that time that the Americas would be the major stage for Spanish colonial expansion, whereas for Portugal, Asia was uh, a lot more central. So the fact that uh, uh, Spanish authorities concentrated most of their means and resources in conquering more lands and colonizing more lands across the Americas and the Caribbean made a a difference and, and played a role in making uh, relations in uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia less tense. Although conflicts continue to occur, but uh, not as intense in, as in these initial years of the 16th century. Um, 
But in parallel to to this uh, overseas uh, competition, the relations um, continue to be close. Um, And I would say that um, there were several factors to contribute to to the development of uh, ever uh, closer ties between Spain or the Spanish monarchy and Portugal. Well, as I already mentioned, uh, cultural similarities, uh, bilingualism. Uh, uh, do bear in mind that in Portugal, throughout the 16th century and 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 to a large extent also the 17th century, a lot of people could speak Spanish uh, fluently. So uh, the same does not apply to to the Castilians. Uh, but many Portuguese could speak, uh, read, and write in Castilian in, in a very fluent way. The, the 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 cooperation that I said between armies and naval forces of the two of the two polities continued and became even even stronger. Fighting against Muslim was a common cause that united and and gave a sense of uh, communion and belonging to the same party. Um, uh, and, uh, and another factor that so far I have not mentioned, the fighting against the Protestants also played a role, I think. Uh, uh, parallel to this very strong uh, obligation to fight the Muslims and the infidels in general, the fighting against the Protestants was also something that made the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, feel that they were part of the same world and uh, the same cause. Uh, not that the Protestants were so frequent in, in, in the Iberian Peninsula, they were not, but uh, the, the fact that Portugal, both Portugal and the Spanish monarchy joined uh, the kind of a Catholic bloc that fought the Protestants in Europe um, gave them a sense of moral superiority, a sense that they were in the right side of the fighting, that they were the ones who, in confessional terms, were correct. To remind that uh, from the Catholic standpoint in the 16th and 17th century, the Protestants were heretics and were completely mistaken about their faith. And so this sense of, of, of Catholicism being an element that in a very deep way defined what uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish identity, of course, also contributed to 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 develop this sense of being part of uh, of uh, of the same ensemble, uh, you know. So I think Catholicism and and religion, Catholic religions, which was of course a disputed matter. I'm not saying uh, uh, that everybody accepted Catholicism. We all know that Catholicism, even inside the Iberian Peninsula, and uh, in spite of the fact that there were no Protestants. Catholicism was a, 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 a disputed, highly disputed matter and uh, generated lots of uh, violence and forced conversions and persecution, the Inquisition and so forth and so on. But um, in terms of uh, religious and, so to say, national identity of the Iberians, uh, Catholicism was a powerful source of, uh, of, uh, of community, of um uh, feelings of belonging to the same community, to the same group, to the same party. So the 
the geographic proximity of Portugal and Spain, as well as their cultural and linguistic affinities, has always allowed for a significant degree of interchange, whether of information or of people or whatever. Um, was this interchange intensified by their respective imperial interests in the 16th century? It did. It did. Um, um, it did intensify because, as I said before, um, I think there was a permanent curiosity about what was going on in both sides of, of the border. You know, um, there were uh, the Spaniards and the Portuguese were closely watching each other and seeing what they were doing, for instance, in overseas affairs or in terms of development of the of uh, of the government apparatus in peninsular Portugal or peninsular Castile. So um, they 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 are uh, clo closely uh, watching each other. They imitate each other sometimes. They they get inspiration uh, from what their counterpart uh, uh, was doing. And uh, there, there's a lot of a sh sharing of experiences, uh, both in uh, in the peninsular context and also in uh, in uh, overseas territories, and of course, as I said before, the cooperation that was uh, more and more frequent uh, as we move forward in 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 the uh, 16th century, this also made easier to 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 see uh, what the Portuguese or the Spaniards were doing, for instance, regarding. The native peoples of uh, the Americas, or regarding the Sub-Saharan Africans, or regarding the Asians. So there is a lot of uh, a sharing of information, um, and uh, as I said, the circulation of people uh, also contributed to 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 interchange circulation, not just uh, inside the peninsula, but also in overseas lands. Uh, recent research has demonstrated that. The number of Portuguese participating in the, the initial stages of the conquest, the Spanish conquest of America, is impressive. So, if you take the major expeditions in the Caribbean, in the area of nowadays Panama, the so-called Castilla del Oro, if you take Cortes expeditions, if you take what was going on in the in in Peru, you constantly see Portuguese participating in, in the conquest, in the military operations. And uh, after that, you also see a lot of Portuguese migrating to uh, Spanish territories in the Americas. So the number of Portuguese living in Spanish America by the late 16th century is, is impressive. Uh, and, uh, and, and so this, uh, this um, circulation of people also contributed to closing the ties. This was not exactly something that the authorities were promoting. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, quite on the contrary, because uh, one of the things that was established in the, the, the Treaty of Two Desires, uh, and I suppose Tamara Tsog has, has, has mentioned that, was the fact that um, uh, uh, from that moment on, the territories due to be conquered and uh, and colonized by the Spaniards were exclusively for people uh, from Castile, uh, whereas in the Portuguese case, the territories conquered and colonized by the Portuguese in, in, in South America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and in Asia would be 
only uh, for the Portuguese. So, in other words, only um, Portuguese vassals were allowed to settle down in Portuguese-controlled territories across Asia, Africa, and Brazil. And the same applies to Spanish America. This, this was the decision made not just in, in Tordesillas, but also made in the years that followed by the Spanish and the Portuguese authorities. Now, uh, in theory, therefore, the Spanish territories were close to other Iberian peoples. Uh, they were exclusively for uh, for the people from Castile, just like just like the English territories in North America throughout the 17th century were in theory exclusively for English subjects and not uh, open totally open to people from Scotland, for instance. So this kind of regime existed in the Iberian overseas territories. The Portuguese Empire was exclusively for people from Portugal, so vassals of the King of Portugal, whereas Spanish America uh, was exclusively for uh, Spanish uh, or Castilian vassals. Uh, in practical terms, these restrictions... And, sorry to interrupt, but uh, specifically Portuguese Catholics. Catholics, as also, of to, course. Yeah, but yeah, that, yeah. that's an important point, because from the late 15th century onwards, both the Spanish and the Portuguese authorities said that uh, they would not allow to have vassals of a different faith than Catholics. So uh, being or becoming Catholic be, uh, uh, was a condition to be vassal of the King of Spain or the King of Portugal. So, so this meant that um, someone who was not Catholic was not allowed to be uh, labeled and treated as a vassal of the King of Portugal. Also in juridical, juridical terms, one of the interesting outcomes of, the, of this is that, for instance, in, in, Af in, in Asia, in the Portuguese territories of Asia, when the Portuguese started to convert uh, more and more Asian people to Christianity, to Catholicism, frequently in a forceful way, these newly converted uh, Asians, uh, newly converted to Catholicism, began being regarded as vassals of the King of Portugal. So conversion uh, to Catholicism also had an impact in juridical terms, in the status of the persons. Um, so what I was saying is that um, the, uh, the fact that these restrictions were, were, were uh, established uh, making it, uh, uh, at least in theory, impossible for a Portuguese to settle down in Spanish America or for a Castilian to settle down in Goa, in, in the Portuguese uh, territory of Goa in Asia. Um, in practical terms, this was not enforced uh, in a very uh, strict way. So the main outcome of that was, as I said before, an increasing number of Portuguese settled down in Spanish America, and they were welcome there because they were skillful people, they had uh, many competences, they could perform different tasks 